Hello and welcome to a new podcast from the London Library, in which interesting people tell us about the books that have shaped their lives. I'm Philip Marshall, Director of the London Library, and this week's guest is Valerie Brandes. Valerie is the founder of Jacaranda Books, a publishing house that aims to tackle the lack of opportunities for black and Asian writers to get published in the UK. In 2020, Jacaranda will publish 20 books by black British writers, 20 for 2020. A tremendous project which I'm delighted we have been able to support at the London Library. Welcome Valerie. It's wonderful to have you here, particularly as this must be an incredibly busy time for you with your 20 for 2020 project. How's it all going? Good morning, Philip. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's going, <laughs> i put it that way. It's a really crucial time for us. We're sort of finalising a lot of aspects of the list for next year. Best part of it, of it, I think, has been meeting the authors and getting to see, you know, hear some of their stories and see just how amazing they are. And I just, I'm so proud of it. I'm really just proud that we were able to do it. And um, yeah, just to be able to bring some of these books to, you know, new readers. I think it's a fantastic idea and it's obviously really important as well. Um, so we're delighted that we've been able to fantastic. Uh, work with you on it. That's great. Well, you've, um, you've given us a great list of books to look at um, and I'm really excited to be um, talking to you about those. Let's look at the first choice, um, which is James Baldwin, Going to Meet the Man, collection of short stories with, of course, Going to Meet the Man being one of those short stories is it the is it the collection or that particular story within it that um that you, you that, that you chose for today yeah so definitely the the individual story going to meet the man that particular story was one that was very impactful and, and quite traumatic for me to read but you know i had been a very voracious reader from a very early age you know kind of starting with the encyclopedia britannica my dad used to pay off every saturday for them and we had them in the house and I would just like dive in and read and read and read and discover all these wonderful things. And, you know, I went to a church school from the age of five. So we always had hymn books in the house. I used to love reading the hymns and the languages in there. It's just delicious, some of these hymns, you know. So I've always been very kind of steeped in the world of words. And also I'm the second youngest of 11 children. So 11. it was my escape. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to find a little corner of the world that was mine. Um, so I've always been reading, always into books, always it's been quite advanced in that way. Um, so I was quite young when I came across James Baldwin, um, who is, you know, very complex, gifted and amazing author. So for a, a, like a 14 year old to be reading James Baldwin at that time um, was a, a bit of a, yeah. <laughs> it was a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Um, and having said all that, you know, growing up in, you know, the 70s and 80s in London, uh, I do see, think that even though we were kind of, you know, in, in challenging circumstances, shall we say, there was also a sense of being protected and quite sort of closeted in a way, especially within my family. Um, my parents were very, my mum in particular was very religious. And um, I came across this story and it's basically the story of a lynching. So uh, the, the main character is a white man who, it's, it's, his, it's his job essentially to capture this um, black slave, runaway slave, and lead, you know, the chorus in, for the lynching of this human being. And it's all about his, um, you know, he's really pissed off about it, really, like what an inconvenience to his life. And at the same time, there are all these kind of like sexual un undertones to it, and the violence is really bizarre. Um, but the thing that really got me, and the thing that I think that James Baldwin did so amazingly in the book was, he describes it as a celebration. So 
as you're going along, first of all, you're in the mind of this man who, you know, it's it's not a nice place to be, definitely not. And uh, he gets his family up, they get dressed in their Sunday best, and there's this very jovial, almost carnival atmosphere. And at the same time, you've been reading through the perspective of the runaway slave as well, and just the kind of like, you know, um, last moment of life, really, for this human being as he's running through the swamps and the dogs are after him. And it's just, it's all very rich and redolent. And um, then he takes you like step by step, you know, piece by piece through this lynching and the castration of this man and the burning. And, you know, I was 14. And again, I my awareness came through race first, not gender. So I'm, I'm really identifying racially with this character. And it just traumatized me. Like I didn't think that that kind of thing could happen to anyone. And I didn't think that children would not be uh, affected by it. You know, the whole the whole world that he created for my very young mind, even at the time I felt like I was could handle it, but I really couldn't. And I ended up having nightmares over it. And my mom was just like, get that out of the house. What is, you know, she was very much yeah, like, don't yeah. read that, you know, um, because it was traumatizing to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, I can understand that. Um, this is our. Let me show you our our copy. Uh, it's wow. a it's a first edition from 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 the UK. It's been it's been very well used, as you can see. It's slightly uh, um, oh. in need of a bit of care and attention, and been very. You can see all the the stamps inside yes. showing how well borrowed it's been. It uh, might take you back <laughs> to to your childhood. Um, reading of it but i don't want to i don't want you to get more nightmares no. <laughs> I, I, yeah. um but it's uh no it is as you say very rich and and um i mean you just describe it so visually i think you know he writes in a very visual way doesn't he and were you experiencing racism growing up or, you know you, it was it just this level of obviously this level wasn't happening in the uk mm. but you know obviously must have affected you growing up mm. what was what was going on around you in the yeah. UK at the time so I think it's an interesting one because it it's complicated shall we mm. say I mean definitely not that level of racism at that time um but we also were in a community I grew up in Stoke Newton in Hackney so we were in a community that was you know for if it, all the buzzwords of today as diverse as you want to be I mean we had English German Irish Turkish Indian African Caribbean Everybody on our street, everybody, and the, it was a cross street with a pub one. There was a pub across the road and there was a synagogue to the left of us and then the church down the road. And that's where we all lived. So I went to this church school that, you know, we'd go to the jumble fair, you know, we'd go to the summer fair and you, we did all these very, very English things. I remember one day that um, one of the teachers asked us, we were in geography and they said, what? What sea is the Caribbean, are the Caribbean islands in? And no one knew, like none of the black kids knew the Caribbean Sea. We weren't, we had no idea about that over there. We were like English, you know? And I guess it was at that time where it was like assimilation or else, you know? And our parents was, were of that generation where at least my my family were, that that's the thing to do, you know? So it was all this sort of, you know, you, you ate your English food, you know, at school, you came home, you had your Caribbean food, but you kind of were, we were just in the culture. So the racism, I think that it was just a growing awareness of, oh, but we're different. You mentioned your your mother um, earlier. I mean, and, and that you, you're one of 11 children. She must be an amazing person. Tell, tell, tell us about her. She is. She's my rock and my hard place. <laughs> 
No, she's absolutely my hero. She's 94 years old. She's had a 94th birthday. Her and the Queen are the same age as she keeps reminding us. <laughs> <laughs> I think for her, she was like an accidental mother of many children. I don't think it was ever her intention to have as many children as she did. She was having children at a time when contraception wasn't a thing, really. You know, the pill wasn't invented until the 70s and all of her kids were born in the 50s and 60s. And... um it was down to the man, you know, so, you know, my mom didn't want to have any kids anymore and wanted to have, you know, a tube side or whatever. My dad had to be the one to okay that operation. And actually that's what happened in the end was he was the one that had to sign off on her having a hysterectomy after the 11th child. So it was just a different world that she was brought up in. She grew up in Dominica and the Caribbean, very close to her mom, very, very bright woman. Um, intellectually very smart. Let's talk about then the joys of motherhood since that seems to fit very well with um, y- you know what you've just said about your mother. I've got a copy here actually, the library's copy is a first edition uh, by Gucci Emichetta. Mm-hmm. There you are again, it's been been well, well borrowed from the library. Oh, this is so exciting, <laughs> my goodness. So wow. tell us about what this book means to you. Right, so Obviously, The Joys of Motherhood is a deeply, deeply ironic title. And I think that often when um, it's talked about, it's talked about in sort of term, feminist terms. And and I, I don't necessarily see it as a feminist book at all, um, because I think it's very specific to its nation. You know, it's a Nigerian book um, set amongst Nigerian people, amongst the tribal communities in Lagos. And um, but there are sort of parallels in a way where um, I think that what it p- appealed to me was this main character, Enuigo, the main character, is this woman who has kind of been cursed. You know, her woman's been cursed. She's been told that she can't have children. And um, there's a mystical sort of spiritual moment that happens um, that results in a woman being killed and thrown into the casket with um, her, her one of her forebears who passed away. And she's like the descendant of the this moment. Um, who has she, she sort of spends her entire life chasing motherhood and it's just awful <laughs> you know it's just one really trying um, moment after another and I'm, I'm not putting that in the right context at all I'm sure but you know she because of the way in which you know polygamy uh, functioned and the way in which the woman's status was not deemed in any way on the, on the same level as a man her, her only hope really was to find a way to bear children, to bear sons, and to have them be successful in order for her to have a better life. And so she ends up herself having, I think, about nine children throughout the course of the book. Many of her children die. Um, those that survive, she's able to educate some of them. Some of them leave and go to the state. Some of them marry well. Um, but at the end of the book, you know, she essentially dies alone. And it's only after her death that her children come back and sort of celebrate her, where she's not even privy to the party, as it were, Mm. you know. And um, it just was a very powerful read, you know, very kind of sobering. And uh, reading these kind of stories where you see these characters struggling with with the way in which society deems your life, your own life should be. We're going to put these rules on you. We're going to put these strictures on you. We're going to put these sort of um, weights on you and we're not going to ever give, you know, we're not going to give you any relief. And the only relief that you're going to have is that you're going to die, you know, (laughs) it's like, (laughs) 
and and then the fact that she called it the joys of motherhood you know it's just i think that um it just yeah I, that really appealed to me and you did of course go on to to have two children of your own um you grew up and you went to university and went to the united states mm -hmm. i think yeah so i what happened was i ended up having a job i got a job at the economic and social research council in london and I worked for, in postgraduate training and in postgraduate training, you got all these students applying for research grants in all these weird and wonderful places and you had to have a 2-1 degree. So I, that was just an opening on the world for me. I'm like, oh my God, you can actually do this and get money to do this. So that was my goal. I'm going to apply to university and I have to get a 2-1, which I did. Um, so I applied to Exeter University and they had um, a course at the time, it was American and Commonwealth Arts. And I applied because of the Commonwealth aspect of it, because I wanted to go to university. Um, that in the in your it was a four year course, and in your junior year, you got to go to. Um, well, I hoped you would have. I would have gotten to go to the University of West Indies to study. That was my job, sort of dream, but they didn't have any links with the University of the West Indies. So my choices were Louisiana, New Mexico, or California. Okay, California. Yeah. <laughs> Even though not because of any reason, because remember, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a Hackney girl, you know, I'm a Londoner, born and bred. California might as well be Mars, you know, I have no idea what that means, but it sounded better than Louisiana and New Mexico. And my best friend, who's still my best friend today, Kirsty Hills, she said um, she went to Berkeley. And so I said, oh, I want to go to Berkeley where Kirsty's going. And they said, no, 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 you guys need to be separated. So they sent me to UC Santa Cruz, which I'd never heard of. No one had heard of it. And I'm like, where am I going? Um, and uh, I went off, met Kirsty at Berkeley, had an amazing time going around the campus. It was everything I thought an American university should be. You know, the little town was beautiful, big campus, football team. And then we decided we're going to drive up the coast to Santa Cruz. And all I remember as I'm coming up to the sort of perimeter of the school is this, firm, as far as the eye could see, this field, and it was completely brown. And then there was a little wooden shack at the top. <laughs> and I was just like, this is not happening to my life. Like, am I really going there? But actually it turned out to be an amazing place. It's um, set on the hill, the university, overlooking the sea giant redwoods all around. I'd go to school and you'd see the deer running in and out and these amazing trees. And I met my husband the first day of school. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So Marianne Williamson, A Return to Love. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a, a, fa a fascinating book. It was a New York Times bestseller in America. So obviously very big over there as well. Um, yeah, t tell us about uh, what that book means to you. Yeah, so again, I was out of context. I was in America in this very affluent society, world, um, community. Um, I was one of two black families there at the time. And um, I, yeah, I was just completely floundering. I had my baby and she was born six weeks premature. She was only three pounds, 14 ounces when she was born and they kept her in ICU and so, and, and my husband, I should say, full disclosure, he's your sort of, at the time, was your sort of typical California surfer guy, very much, you know, vegan before it was even a thing, like, you know, 30 years ago, just kind of really out there. 
And uh, when we found out I was having the baby, he was just like, okay, that's it. Nothing, no interference. We're doing this by ourselves. You know, we're completely natural. He used to make me like all these vegan dishes every single day. I'd have all this different food. Um, but you know, nature has other ideas, doesn't she? And so um, later on in the pregnancy, I went into, they had very basic uh, machinery. And I went in and um, they put me on this monitor and she said, this doesn't look good. You need to go to the hospital. So I went into the hospital and um, they gave me, you know, sort of examined me some more and they admitted me right away and put me on medication to stop me from contracting because I was, I'd gone into labor and I didn't even realize. And um, then I had suddenly had gone from this completely natural kind of moment to things coming in and out of me and needles and all sorts of nonsense going on. Um, but it, as it turned out, uh, I was in labor um, and I'd also had pregnancy induced hypertension. So my blood pressure was really high. I didn't know any of this. I was just walking around like I had no idea this was happening. Um, one of the byproducts of that is that the baby's lungs develop. So my daughter's lungs had developed to 40 weeks, which was much good. She could then be delivered, but she was underweight. She was only three pounds. So had the baby and then they took her off to the ICU and they packed me off home and um, it was just devastating you know to leave the hospital that's when I'm grateful for the fact that I was you know brought up in this church environment and in this religious environment because I did fall back heavily on that faith and that belief um, but I wasn't looking for another church necessarily or religion per se and I had a friend of mine who was going to a church in LA and called Agape, and she gave me this Marianne Williamson cassette, and um, I used to put it in my car and drive to the hospital to see my daughter. And you know, I, I can read you a bit of the introduction. Oh, that would be great. Thank you. She said, um, "She said a return to love is about the practice of love as a strength and not a weakness, as a daily answer to the problems that confront us." This book is written as a guide to the miraculous application of love as a balm on every wound, whether our psychic pain is in the area of relationships, health, career or elsewhere, love is a potent force, the cure, the answer. And she said, my prayer is that this book might help someone. And it helped you. And it did, yeah. So a very, a very, very important book for you at that time in your, in your life. And you stayed in America, as you said, for, for 20 years. What, what drove you to come back? I think it was just always that feeling of not quite being at home and home is where my mom is essentially um and I'd been there you know after 10 years it's so very different I can't even describe how different amazing but very different uh it's this amazing seafront and gorgeous Tory pines and trails and pathways and lots of cookie cutter houses and you know and and the San Diego's kind of caught between the sea the mountains the border <laughs> and Camp Pendleton you know so it's the desert it's the military it's you know, the beach life it's all of these sort of aspects of life all combined into one and I never really found my myself there I really did not at all um, and after 10 years my friend was like are you still homesick you need to go home and then I took another nearly 10 years to do that. But um, as my children, my daughter was about to enter into middle school. So she was about 11 at the time. And my son was about nine. And I just thought, if I don't do it now, I'm not going to be able to do it properly. Um, so and, I, and what the it was, was bringing them back to London, to where I grew up, 
which, you know, wasn't nothing like that. You know, I grew up in Hackney, but the Hackney I went back to wasn't even the Hackney I grew up in, really. So you, re- you returned to England and, and then you find your next step in your career, yeah. which is towards what you are now, a publisher. Yeah. Um, tell us about that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> I had worked as a bookseller in um, San Diego when my kids were younger in particular. I worked at Barnes & Noble. Um, so, and I'd always, you know, worked with, um, I'd been part of a writing collective as well, the Writer's Room, with this wonderful woman, Judy Reeves, who's got an amazing book called The Writer's Book of Days. And we she used to hold these sessions in San Diego. So I was part of that group of um, authors as well. Um, but when I decided that I needed my kids to sort of know where I came from and know my family, um, and I came back to London, it was very clearly, quickly realised, I need a job, you know? And I'd had this, you know, great experience of being a stay-at-home mum all this time. So now I had to kind of retrain. So I was able to get a place on City University in the Masters in Publishing Studies course there with Miriam Kernan. And um, from there, got a job at Profile with Andrew Jack- uh, Franklin, um, which was amazing. And just, I love him as a human being and really love that publishing company and what they do and how well they do it. They're definitely an ins- inspiration for me at Jacaranda. But as I sat there, you know, this was sort of 2009, 2010, um, and there was still this prevalent idea within the industry of what can we do about the lack of diversity? A lot of this hand wringing and, oh, well, you know, we don't know how to address the issue. And I just got tired, you know, I got tired of listening to it. And I thought, well, maybe I can do this. You know, I love books. I love writing. I don't know anything about publishing, but maybe I can start a publishing company. I think for me, in a way, I had to do it that way. I had to be completely ignorant about what I was doing. (laughs) If I had even the slightest idea, you know, it would have been all over. (laughs) How much does your personal um, subjective choice of uh, what you enjoy to read, Mm -hmm. how, how much does that affect the sorts of books you publish? I mean, I have to say it's completely, uh, until this year where we have now got more people on board, it's completely been my my taste. You know, it's literally, I like that book, I'm going to publish it. And, uh, you know, not everything is for everyone. You know, that's clearly the the case over and over again. Um, we've had a lot of criticism for some of the books that we published, but, you know, I stand by all of them. Um, they're books that I've read and I loved and I thought, well, I'm going to publish that book. And that is a really great place, powerful place to be in as a publisher. And that's part of the kind of drive to want to continue to do it and to represent, you know, black people, black writing, women, because that's a powerful position to be able to say, well, I'm going to be the arbiter and I'm going to want George Bush's famous, I'm the decider, you know, I'll be the one to decide. Mm, Yeah. mm. Well, let's look at your next book choice. Um, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Um, the copy I've got here in front of us is one of the library's copies. We've got um, several. And this one actually um, was bought in 2019. Why is this book so important? Yeah, here? this book is my favourite book. It's absolutely my favourite book. It's the book that I think I have most copies of. I buy every edition that I can find. The the, the novel, The Bluest Eye, it begins with the sort of primer of you know, the mother, the father, Dick and Jane, and uh, it starts off and it goes quite quickly. It's just a beautiful read, like you have to read the first page of the novel. And then she begins and she says, 
Quiet as it's kept, there were no marigolds in the fall of 1941. We thought at the time that it was because Pecola was having her father's baby that the marigolds didn't grow. A little examination and much less melancholy would have, to prove, would have proved to us that our seeds were not the only ones that did not sprout. Nobody's did. Not even the gardens fronting the lake showed marigolds that year. But so deeply concerned were we with the health and safe delivery of Pecola's baby, we could think of nothing but our own magic. If we planted the seeds and said the right words over them, they would blossom and everything would be all right. From the first time I read it, I just feel like it's it's just a, the, in the perfect book. There's not a spare word in this text. And I think, you know, I've, I've spoken about that before, that I think that speaks to Toni Morrison and her abilities as an editor, first of all. Um, and it being, I think, her first novel, she really took time. She really took time with this book, getting everything the way that she wanted it. Um, so it's a small book, um, but right out the gate, the way that she sort of structures it, you know, against the primer of, you know, Dick and Jane. And as you go further into the book, this whole thing about identity, again, is what I was saying to you that, you know, I see myself racially before I see myself in any other way. I used to. Um, and these books were where I've I found my identity. So she speaks about colorism in this book, which is an, an issue within the black community where, you know, darker skinned women like myself have to struggle, you know, to be respected or to be acclaimed or to be desired or all of these elements. If you're a darker skinned black woman, you're sort of still trying to fight for that as well. Um, but when, especially when you're a child, it can be, you know, really, really, really damaging. And that is the first place in which I sort of keyed into this character because this young child, you know, she has a, she just paints her in such a, a beautiful and painful way, you know, where it's all about the girl with the long hair and she wants to be that girl so desperately and she wants to have blue eyes and she wants to have blonde hair and she clearly doesn't have it. But also it's within the context of this family. Oh, they just break your heart, you know. Um, there's a scene in the book that really moved me um, where the family have saved up to buy a couch and the couch gets delivered and it's damaged. And they don't know that they're worth more than that damaged couch. They don't know that they can send it back and they can demand because they've paid for it a couch that's not damaged. And so they keep that damaged couch in the house and it becomes representative again of even more uh, level of, you know, this this level of complete divestment from yourself as a human being, you know, which again, it's a work of fiction, but the way that Tony Morrison writes and the way that I'm reading it, I'm these people are real to me. They're real people to me. And um, as you go through the book, you know, there are many scenes that just like jump out and really speak to you. There's a scene where she goes to the mother who works as a maid and doesn't have time to look after her own family, but is looking after the white family. And she goes to the movies and, you know, there's a, a beautiful black and white scene. It might have been, you know, I don't know, one of these gorgeous blonde models, you know, in their beautiful homes. And here she's in the movie theatre. And it's just such a stark reality, one that you can relate to. We've all been there, you know, you get transported. That's why you go to the movies. But to have to see that and then go back to her life where she's the maid in that movie, you know, she's that woman looking after that woman on the screen. It's just powerfully done. 
And then at the very end of the book, there is a scene where they've, you know, they they fell in love, Pekala and um, the father. They were in love. It was a love story, um, but it was broken down by the pressures of racism and being poor and all of those things. And now you've got these sort of broken people. And um, towards the end of the novel, there's a scene where the father rapes the daughter. He rapes the little girl. And I remember reading that, you know, and really the 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 fight there was a fight in me to know who I should feel more sorry for the way she wrote it and having that fight was the reason why I thought this book has I'll never not you know that experience of mine where here's a terrible act there's no question it's a terrible act but because of my understanding of racism and the way that it works and because of the way in which Toni Morrison just completely encapsulated the lives of these poor people the what this poor black man where all his dreams when all his you know aspirations for himself and his family where the mother where all her dreams and aspirations went this little girl broken in between the two of them and now this terrible act and it was just like you just don't know who to care about more and uh i just yeah just blew me away it's very 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 moving um a great great choice Someone's listening who is uh, thinking, I would love Jacaranda to publish my book and that you're going to send it. What sort of thing would you, tips would you give them, advise them to to, oh. to write like or anything? What advice would you give them? I mean, it's every publisher's dream, you know, to get that, that book that just is incandescent and sets you alight and you're just like, no brainer, that's the book I want to publish. Um, don't get too many of those. No. Um, but I feel for, for Jacaranda, I know this is going to sound really terrible, but I'm going to say it. Write a good book. You know, care about what you're writing about. Care about your craft. Care about your audience. You know, I think that, um, especially nowadays, you know, people tend to think that, oh, I'm just going to, you know, be an author and somebody will like my book, you know. But I think those are, those are the things I would say. Care about what you're doing. It doesn't matter what the subject matter is. You know, if you look at our list, you'll see that it's a very, very eclectic list, you know, but there's something, there's usually some hook or some energy or um, something that I haven't come across before that will mean, oh yeah, I'll definitely publish this. I think the thing to to say is what we were looking for at the time, and I think we still are looking for, are sort of contemporary modern stories. So we are in the 21st century and we want to be able to be, as a company, accessible to authors who feel the pressure. I think a lot of black authors more feel the pressure to have to be high literary, you know, of the canon. You know, this has to be a prize winning genre defying novel and great if they are. But at the same time, we want really good stories and we want stories that have, you know, more of a mass appeal, if you like. Your uh, fifth book choice um, is Jaguar Nana by <laughs> Cyprian Ekwenzi. Um This book was um, uh, published back in 1961. Our copy is 1963. Oh, um, there you are. Have a look you at have that. You a copy? Uh, yeah, of course. Wow, yeah. Look at this. This is um, a Heinemann. No. Wow. No, this book is set in Lagos. Yeah. And well, tell, you tell us about this book. Yeah, so it is set in Lagos, and it's really interesting that it was written such a long time ago because 
the thing that really appealed to me about this book is I feel it it is a jacaranda book. Like this would be the mm, book mm. that we would publish today because it and we I think we have sort of published it in many ways. Um because it it is a it's a real story. It it feels accessible. Um the main character Jaguar, um she's called Jaguar because she's this sleek and gorgeous prostitute essentially is what she is and you know sort of the old tart with a heart of gold kind of thing who's resisting being forced into a traditional life of being a wife and a mother. So again, there are the themes mm. that run through. Um, but I remember reading this, but I read it in uni- at university and, you know, the very opening of the book, I, this was a woman I'd never seen before in fiction. This was a woman I felt was me, you know, like she looked like me and I just fell in love with it. So through this journey, and thank you for taking us on this journey through your, your life. Um, there's been this theme of, of finding your identity do you feel you found that now oh that's a good question um no (laughs) I'm not done um I feel like I said you know when I as a child the first understanding was that I'm racially different and that was trying to learn how to fit into that identity and then actually so I have six sisters and my mum is just this huge monolithic woman in my life my father passed when I was 17 so I've all and then I went to an all-girls school so then my identity as a woman and as a you know a young girl growing up into a woman, that became the sort of overriding thing. And that was, again, another fantastic journey into sort of understanding where you fit in the world and opening up paragraphs like, you know, the one in, in Jaguanana and seeing yourself, you know. And then I found myself being married and being a mother. And, you know, I've been with my husband for 30 years. So it's how and now my kids are the age that we were when we met you know and they're going off into their worlds and living their lives so now who am I you know and I think that this phase of my life might be the most interesting yet there's a whole new sense of a new reassessment of where I am in the world it feels very free because uh I'm not concerned so much about creating a world or a life for other people um, and it feels free in my relationship with my husband because now we just have to figure out who we are as a- adults, grown-ups in the world, and that's kind of fun, you know, so that's good. And I have this, I guess I did, I timed it well in a way to sort of start this business as my children were growing up so that now I have to f- figure out myself in this business world, in this business context, and, you know, that's really interesting and lots of it is really gratifying it's a constant quest for a sense of self isn't it especially when in a way you've been born out of context because you know i'm 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 african but not born in africa you know i'm caribbean but not born in the caribbean i'm black i'm born in england which is like and you know has a certain dichotomy and you know you're a woman so there are all of these factors that are constantly at play trying to understand who you are thank you ever so much for coming and sharing your me. book choices with us and it's been a fascinating discussion um about those and about your life and your journey and uh, and jacaranda and i wish you every success with the next chapter oh thank you philip i thoroughly enjoyed it thank you for listening and to find out more about the london library please visit our website at londonlibrary.co.uk Please check the links in the show notes and rate us and subscribe.